Several years ago, Worcester, Massachusetts police found an elderly woman dead on her kitchen floor. Not a peculiar situation. It happens all the time. But what was unusual about this discovery is that the woman had been dead for four years. Four years. How could she have been dead for that long and no one know? Well, the woman's brother said that the family had never been close. The neighbors all said that they had gotten the impression from this woman that she preferred to be left alone. In the end, it was a sad story of folks living in close proximity, but not in community. Paul opens chapter 5 telling us that this should never happen in the church. Remember the theme of 1 Timothy? Chapter 3 verse 16 tells us, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. And here in chapter 5, Paul tells us that one of the ways the church should conduct itself is like a family. Notice verse 1, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger as sisters, with all purity. I think one of the great tragedies of modern mobile society is the breakdown of the extended family. There was a day when folks had a support system of friends and relatives that they could lean on in tough times. During transition or in trouble, there was someone they could depend on. When the baby was born, grandma would help. If financial hardships struck, brothers and uncles would pitch in. People had a social safety net. Today, folks bounce from city to city and they leave behind scattered relatives. People today are home alone. On a daily, practical basis, there's a lack of community. This is why I believe Paul's words in these first two verses are more important today than ever. The church is supposed to act like an extended family. Older men should be respected, treated as fathers. They bring great wisdom to the table. And before you rebuke one, you need to make sure you realize that before long you'll be one. Treat younger men as brothers. You're a little freer to joke around with a brother or get in his face if need be. He's a peer. Every man needs some brothers in his life. Older ladies should be treated like moms. They should be loved on and appreciated. The older ladies of the fellowship have your best interests at heart. And a young Pastor Timothy should treat the younger women as sisters, Paul adds, with all purity. In other words, don't let, don't let it get sexual or flirtatious in your interactions with the younger women, Timothy. Keep the relationships with the opposite sex familial. Younger women aren't foxes, they aren't chicks, they aren't babes, they're sisters. As my children got married, my wife knew that we would have to share them on holidays with our in-laws. Their attendance at the Adams get-togethers on Thanksgiving and Christmas would be sort of hit or miss. But Kathy was very smart. She picked another day that belongs to us. For on New Year's Day, everybody comes to our house. It's an Adams tradition now. The men, we watch football while the women, they cook up all these delicious desserts. And it's a great day. We laugh, we scream, we cheer, we play, we groan when our team loses, we eat, 
and we eat and we eat. It's our day. It's a day that we're all together. Well, this is what church should be on Sundays. This is what Sundays should mean to the church. It's our day. We read our Bibles, we pray, we worship every day. But on Sundays, we do it together. It's our day. And it reinforces family. Sunday is a weekly family reunion, and it's an important day. It's vital to us and to our kids that we make Sundays a priority. And speaking of God's family, there were certain members of that family that needed special care. Paul writes of them now in verse 3. Honor widows who are really widows. Once two women, they were sharing a semi-private hospital room. One was the wife of an Episcopal priest. The other was a widow. The two ladies, they, they had never met each other. The first afternoon after their surgeries, the Episcopal priest stopped in for a late visit with his wife. And because he was late in the afternoon, he came straight from the church, and so he's still wearing his clerical collar. The two of them, they talked for a long, long time. Finally, the priest reached over and gave the woman a wonderful, warm embrace and then a deep, passionate kiss. It was a wonderful moment. Well, the other woman, she had just woken up from her anesthesia when she saw all this happening. Later, she said to her roommate, she says, Wow, I've been a member of my church for 50 years and I've never gotten that kind of treatment. Well, there were also a few women, some widows in Timothy's church, who felt that they too had been slighted. You know, in Bible times, men made up 99.9% of the workforce. There were few opportunities for a widow to gain employment and support her family. And thus, when a family lost its breadwinner, the church invariably had to step in. You know, today the church is called on to step in not only for widows, but in many different situations. Modern society is terribly fractured. And it's become easy for people to fall through the cracks. The poor and the widows and the orphans are now joined by the homeless and the uninsured and the single moms and the latchkey kids. A pastor who wants his church to function like a family has to be strategic. Just start meeting needs with no discretion and you'll bankrupt the church. This is why we need a plan of attack. Churches need a benevolent strategy. How are we going to honor the widows who are really widows? Here's the questions that all pastors and all churches have to ask. How far do we go to supply financial help to needy people? You see, it didn't take Timothy long to discover two truths that all churches face when it comes to benevolence. First, we face unlimited needs. Unlimited needs. But second, we have limited resources. And when you're trying to meet unlimited needs with limited resources, discretion, wisdom is an absolute must. In the next 14 verses, Paul is going to give to Timothy, and all pastors for that matter, principles for allocating aid to the needy, or in this case, to the widows. These instructions contain seven principles. I'll enumerate them for, for you that I think apply to every church's benevolence ministry. And here's the first principle. Never contribute to someone else's irresponsibility. Paul tells us in verse 3. Honor widows who are really widows. 
But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now you'd think a real widow would be easy to identify. But in Paul's mind, a true widow, a candidate for this benevolence, involved more than just losing a husband. A real widow had to meet certain qualifications. And in the same way, a true poor person, a true needy person, is more than just a person who doesn't have a savings. Maybe they gambled away their paycheck. Maybe they've refused to go out and get a job. To determine legitimacy, investigation is required. I'll never forget the fellow who came to Calvary Chapel one night with this terrible, sad, sob story. He pulled on everyone's heartstrings. Some of the men in the church actually decided to give him some help. They gave him some money. I'll never forget the next day on the Clark Howard Show, Clark came on and he warned of a con man who'd been fleecing churches in the Atlanta area. In fact, he'd heard he'd been in Lilburn last night. Our guy fit Clark's description to a T. And I realized we'd been snookered. Another time we had a man walk into the church and he asked to use the telephone. Said he had car problems. Nobody noticed that he stood over here in the hallway and talked for over an hour. Until we got our phone bill, we discovered he'd called India. Evidently, his mechanic is in Bombay. Imagine the tow charge from Georgia to India. Hey, the telephone bill was pretty high. It astonishes me that there are people brazen enough to con a church. But it happens. Not everyone who says or seems to be in need is what we should call a truly needy person. We should always want to help. But first, we need to investigate. For Paul, if a church helped a lady who had an able family at home, it was undermining that family's responsibility to take care of mom. He says, let her kids or grandkids care for her first. The church shouldn't enable someone else's irresponsibility. Here's a second benevolence principle. The church should take care of its own first. Notice verse 5. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. A church's priority should be to support the people who are seeking the hand of God before they attempt to meet the needs of those who are just seeking a handout. Help a person who's dead to God who worships the idol of pleasure. And all you've done is fuel their idolatry. I once saw a family, they were rummaging through a goodwill drop-off. And I felt so sorry for this family. Here they are, picking stuff out of the goodwill drop-box. That is until I watched their truck roll across the parking lot and park right in front of the liquor store where they then went in and bought all their liquor. I mean, the church should avoid aiding a person who's dead to God when there are folks out there who are trying to serve the Lord who are in need and who need our help. Look at verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now this obviously applies to individuals. 
as a husband, as a father. I am worse than a pagan. I am worse than an unbeliever if I don't work hard to provide for the needs of my family. But I think this also applies to churches. We need to be concerned for the lost world around us, certainly, but especially of those of our own household. Our first obligation as a church is to care for our own. Then we can reach out to others. There's a third benevolence principle you can jot down. Don't interfere with the character transformation God wants to accomplish in another person's life. Notice what Paul says in verse 9. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet or literally been hospitable, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. Now it could be that these true widows constituted an order or a company of servants in the early church. Ladies with a lifetime history of good works and joyful service were supported by the church so that they could devote themselves to the full-time practice of their ministry. But these, these special widows, this order of widows, this ministry, was offered only to mature believers. Here we're told widows over 60 years old. Women with a settled character who showed a pattern of good works, who had a history of help. Younger widows, they still had much to learn from life and its struggles. For the church to support these ladies, it would only short-circuit the lessons that they would learn from having to lean on the Lord and trust in Him for their needs. I think here's the application for us today. Whenever we offer benevolence, we need to make sure that we're not interfering with the life lessons that God's trying to teach the person involved. Oftentimes, we can step in and solve their problem when God was trying to teach them some things through their problem. Notice the fourth principle. Give God an opportunity to work through other means. Verse 11. But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. See, if a younger lady enters into this order of widows and she takes a vow to serve the Lord full time with her life and with her, with her ministry, what happens later when she gets the urge to get married? I mean, suddenly she's forced to choose either serving Jesus or following the natural and healthy desire of being a wife. No one should be put in that position. Both are great ambitions. A younger gal should be free to go out and to remarry. When people come to our church for help, they're usually desperate. And without realizing it, we can create in them an unhealthy dependence on us. Rather than the church just throw money at every situation, sometimes it's best for us to sit tight and be patient. and Wait on God to work it out some other way. I remember a single lady in our church who told me the sad story of loaning her friend $400. That was big money to her. The friend never paid her back. And now she needed to return home for the holidays, but she didn't have the money to make the trip. I thought about just giving her the money, but for some reason, the Lord checked my heart at the last minute. We just prayed together and trusted God to provide. 
the next week, she called me up and she said that she had received an unexpected $400 in the mail. It had just come supernaturally. God had worked a miracle and had provided for her need. And she was rejoicing. She was praising God. And I dare say, seeing God work a miracle did far more for her faith than if I had reached in my pocket and given her the money. The fifth benevolence principle, make sure your help is not a further temptation. Verse 13, and besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. In other words, rather than filling her hours with meaningful service, a younger lady who lacks the spiritual stature of one of these true widows might just end up with idle time on her hands. By us taking care of her physical needs, rather than serving the Lord with her time and effort, she'll turn into a soap opera addict, or a gossip, or a busybody, or just some spoiled debutante or whatever. I mean, the benevolence plays right into the hands of the devil if we're not careful. This is also why our church rarely gives out cash. We might write a check to the power company or to a landlord, or we might hand out grocery coupons, but we hardly ever give cash. We don't want to add to a person's temptation. I mean, some people, they can't handle five crisp $100 bills in their hand. They know they need to pay rent, but boy, that liquor store is real close too. It never gets to the landlord. It ends up fueling some addiction. This is why we should make sure that our help never furthers someone else's temptation. Which brings us to a sixth principle. We need to look for long-term solutions to situations. Notice verse 14. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, Give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan. So we help the younger widow for the moment. Are we able to support her forever? Probably not. I mean, the longer term solution for her is to find a godly man and get remarried. Of course, we don't want her desperate and grab the first knucklehead that comes along. But she needs to be willing to trust God and re-engage and trust in His grace so she can start over. She needs that kind of encouragement. Unlike the older widows, the younger widows, they still have a lot of living left to do. And they need to be open to the possibility of a new beginning, a second family. There's an old saying that applies to church charity. Catch a man a fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. At times, compassion requires a church's immediate assistance. But sometimes the best benevolence is long-term when we're able to help a person over the long run in their life. And then the last principle, encourage church members to take care of each other. Notice verse 16. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them and do not let the church be burdened, for it may relieve those who are really widows. Remember, every church faces two immutable facts. We face unlimited needs and we possess limited resources. Thus, if individual believers within the church can meet their own needs or meet each other's needs, then it frees up church resources to minister in other ways.
James chapter 1, verse 27 reads, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Folks who pursue God realize our highest calling is to care for the lowliest among us. Families don't let other family members slip through the cracks, and that's why we as the church need to look about and take care of each other. Well, one more time, just for review, let me give you these seven principles for church benevolence. Never contribute to someone else's irresponsibility. The church should take care of its own first. Don't interfere with the character transformation God wants to accomplish in another person's life. Give God an opportunity to work by other means. Make sure your help is not a further temptation. Look for long-term solutions to situations and encourage church members to take care of each other. Well, Paul's been encouraging Timothy, Pastor Timothy, to make sure that no church member slips through the cracks. But verse 17 shifts gears. Who's going to look out for the pastor? What if he slips through the cracks? This can be a problem, especially in new churches. The bulk of the ministry is on the pastor's shoulders while his needs get overlooked. Paul tells the church, Timothy pastors, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. You know what Paul's saying here? He's saying that if a church has a good pastor who feeds them God's word, they need to take out their calculator, plug in his salary, hit that times two button, and double up his pay. He needs double honor. Can I hear an amen? Oh, my wife pitched in. Well, as much as I wish that's what they meant, this verse meant that's not what it means. But I actually like the true meaning of this verse more. This double honor, it speaks of payment in two ways. With a salary, but also with your respect. And there are days, quite frankly, when your respect is far more valuable to me than a salary. Don't just assume that your pastor knows you appreciate him. Trust me, he tends to forget. That's why you need to remind him often. Sadly, over the last 40 years, our society has developed a deep cynicism toward people in authority. And it's not just pastors. It's policemen, political officers, parents. And with each new scandal, the public suspicion just grows. But if you have a pastor who labors in the word and doctrine, if you've got a pastor who works hard in the kitchen of preparation every week to turn out balanced, nutritious sermons and keep you healthy, then you need to support him with double honor, with a salary, and with your respect. Verse 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain. Paul just compared all of us pastors to oxes. But I'll take that. Boy, an ox is a beast of burden. An ox plows, he sticks with it, he's strong, he's consistent. He's at it over the years. I can take being called an ox. Here Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4. Even an ox is allowed to eat from the grain that he threshes. 
And likewise, a pastor should be allowed to eat from the financial fruits of the ministry. Don't muzzle your pastor, Paul is saying. Pay him well. Of course, a lot of churches, they pray this prayer, Lord, you keep the pastor humble and we'll keep him poor. But if that's your attitude, it puts you at odds with Jesus. Notice the last line here in verse 18 is in red letters. It's the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, verse 10. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Well, Moses said pay the pastor. Jesus said pay the pastor. Paul then said pay the pastor. I like this. Thus a church that pays its pastor is in really good company. Verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. You know, church leaders are often the subject of vicious gossip. To an extent, this comes with the territory. I mean, as a pastor, I'm God's spokesman. And this puts a target on my back. People with deeper problems, even problems with God, they often find it easier to blame the pastor than to admit that their beef is with God. Thus, a pastor becomes a convenient scapegoat. Pastors realize this dynamic. But the members of the church hopefully also recognize this vulnerability. And and therefore, they refuse to believe just every negativity they hear about their pastor. I hope you realize the dynamic. As a pastor, I hope the people closest to me, who've been around me for a while, who know me, who've watched me, I hope they choose to believe the best in me and question the accusations and give me the benefit of the doubt until proven guilty. This is why Paul here says that any charge against a pastor or an elder should be carefully substantiated by two or three witnesses. Never entertain hearsay against your pastor. Realize what hurts a pastor most are not the attacks from the enemy, but the friendly fire that he often receives from his own camp. Yet when an accusation is confirmed and a pastor has strayed or has sinned, then it shouldn't be swept under the rug. A pastor or an elder isn't granted immunity. If a pastor is guilty, he needs to be called into account. He's not above correction or discipline. You remember James 3 verse 1 says just the opposite. Let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Thus Paul says it this way in verse 20. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. More so than even a church member, when a leader is disciplined before the church, it becomes a powerful deterrent to sin. One of the hallmarks of a Calvary chapel is that it's built on strong pastoral leadership. In a Calvary chapel, the pastor isn't just a hired hand. He's a leader called by God. And we expect pastors in Calvary chapel to listen to God and to courageously follow His lead. But admittedly, this is a double-edged sword. Our greatest strength can also become our Achilles heel. Calvary Chapel pastors shouldn't just be good teachers. They also should be good leaders. First, good and godly husbands and men. And have good and godly character. See, there's no perfect form of church government. I hope you realize that. Problems exist with congregation-run churches and with elder-controlled churches, and with pastor-led churches. The key for us all 
for all church leaders is to remember that with the blessings of leadership come responsibilities. Every leader needs to keep that in mind. Here Paul challenges Timothy in verse 21. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. Wow. Every pastor needs to recall who's watching. God and Jesus and the angels. That you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. A pastor should be without prejudice. He shouldn't play favorites in the congregation. He should be fair whom he chooses. And then he says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily. All church leaders should be proven before they're promoted. Nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. And this is such a strategic principle. All leaders are called on to roll up their shirt sleeves and get involved in other people's mess. Church work gets messy. It gets dirty. You end up dealing with people's problems. But don't get drugged down by the folks you're trying to help. That's what Paul is saying. I mean, some days I come home and I wonder, is there anybody out there living a godly life? I mean, you just hear so much. And of course, the answer is yes. But even if the answer was no, I need to be. He says, don't share in other people's sin. Keep yourself pure. Don't get drugged down by the people you're trying to help. And then he says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and for your frequent infirmities. Now understand, this was before the days of Rolaids and Pepsi. There were no Tums for Tim. And the old boy apparently had a queasy stomach. He had a digestive tract disorder, and so Paul prescribes for him a little wine for medicinal reasons. But notice the fact that Paul has to tell him it's okay for him to drink a glass of wine is evidence that it was off limits for the elders. Paul had to let him know that his case was an exception, that he could go ahead and take a little wine for his stomach's sake. He says, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Here's an important lesson for leaders. I mean, some sins are obvious. They burn. The burn of the sin is immediate and it's apparent. Other sins are time-released in terms of their consequences. You don't feel the sting until years or months later. And the same is true with good works. A person doesn't always reap in the same season that he sows. Well, chapter 6 begins. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. <clears throat> Historians say that there were as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. That was perhaps half the population. Many of the early Christians came from the ranks of these slaves. And Paul here tells the slaves that they need to respect their masters, that the name of God and His doctrine not be blasphemed. Now, to me, this is provocative. This is a fascinating thought that Paul here never came out and attacked the institution of slavery. Certainly, Paul believed that no human being should ever own another. Paul believed that, we know. 
Paul did abolish slavery in the church. In Galatians 3 verse 28 he states, There is neither slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ. In the church, slaves and slave owners were placed on equal footing. God, Paul and God they abolished slavery in the church. But in society at large, Paul never mounted a direct campaign to wipe out slavery. At least that we know of. In his mind, slavery wasn't the big issue. If he had eliminated the system, there still would have been the attitude. There would have still been wicked men trying to control the lives of other men. As a matter of fact, this goes on today in all kinds of nefarious forms. Paul was far more ambitious than just wiping out slavery. He wanted to wipe out the pride and the selfishness and the greed and the hatred in human hearts that produced the desire to enslave. Paul wanted to get at the root of the problem. Paul preached Christ. Knowing that in hearts where Christ was received, slavery and the desire to manipulate others would soon be a thing of the past. He knew that love would overcome bondage. And thus he speaks to believing slaves, verse 2. He says, And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. I mean, at least you're able to serve your brother. Rather than give way to resentment, they should just make it their goal to bless others. They should trust the Holy Spirit to change their master's heart. They should believe that love will overcome. Paul encourages Timothy in verse 2. Teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Timothy should teach the gospel's ability to change a heart. He should teach the power of love. He should teach the patience of faith. And if anyone taught anything that contradicted these doctrines, Timothy should withdraw himself from them, especially those who mixed godliness with greed. And boy, is this still a problem today. Today, churches teach what's called a prosperity gospel. That God wants everybody to have lots of money. He wants everybody to be rich. Thus, following Jesus becomes a means of getting rich. Godliness becomes a means of gain. In those kinds of churches, God becomes an ATM. Just plug in your prayer, your positive confession, your principle, whatever it might be, and out comes the money. Paul tells Timothy to withdraw himself from such teachers. Paul refutes this doctrine in verse 6. He says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. You know, in the final analysis, money has very little to do with true success. True wealth consists of godliness. It consists of faith and patience and a relationship with God that creates contentment. A real success is learned that Jesus is all we really need. 
It's been said, nothing fails so completely as success without God. Be sure that after you've climbed the ladder of success, it wasn't leaning against the wrong wall. Verse 7 teaches us, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. You've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul, have you? And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. It's been said there are two tragedies in life. Not getting what you want and getting what you want. I mean, once you bite the apple, you realize that it really doesn't satisfy. There's got to be more. Remember what Jesus told the woman at the well? He said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. The same can be said for all that the world has to offer us. Just right above it, you will thirst again. He said, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. According to Paul, food and clothing and Jesus is more than enough. It's been said the key to contentment is not getting more, but wanting less. Wanting less from this world and wanting more and more and more of God. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. And into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Once there was a New Orleans gambling boat, it started to sink. Passengers were diving off the deck, swimming to the shore. One man, though, he he dove into the water and he never resurfaced. It was later discovered that before he jumped off the boat, he had run back into the casino and he'd filled his pockets full of gold coins. He was drowned by his love for money. Verse 10 tells us, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now notice, money isn't the root of all evil. In fact, money can be used as a tool. It can do good. It can bring glory to God. No, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. There's an old saying, every person has his price. In essence, we're moral or we're loyal to a point that we all can be bought at some price. I hope not. I trust not. I trust that you and I are faithful to God regardless of what it might cost us. He says, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, Boy, the best way to flee temptation is pursue the right stuff, isn't it? Faith, love, patience, meekness. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Verse 13. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things, And before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession, before Pontius Pilate. Now, now let me stop there. Notice Paul mentions the Lord of the universe in the same sentence that he mentions a two-bit Roman governor who barely garners a footnote in secular history. Why does he mention Pontius Pilate here? You see, Paul wants us to know that he believes in the Jesus of history. 
that his Savior was not some apparition, some ghost or phantom or spirit, that these weren't tales and stories he believed in. No, the Lord of glory was the Lord of history. He occupied a spot on the history's timeline. God came to earth. He took a human body. He lived a real life in a real place at a real time. He invaded the human struggle. He even made confession in a human court, the court of Pontius Pilate. Verse 14, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which He will manifest in His own time. Now remember Paul's pattern. He charges Timothy, then he praises God, and now here again is his praise. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Here's the irony. The king of kings was tried before a small fry governor. Today, Jesus sits on God's throne in heaven. His holiness radiates unapproachable light. If we ever entered into heaven in these mortal bodies, we'd be burned to a crisp. Thus, we'll get new bodies fit for God's glory. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Did you catch that? Notice that all riches are uncertain riches. Just follow the stock market. They're uncertain riches. I thought Facebook was going to be a sure bet. And so I threw in some money on the share builders, you know, stock uh, thing, you know, the little self thing. I bought a bunch of shares of Facebook. Next day, my $40 a share Facebook stock went down to 20 bucks. Uncertain riches. Here today, gone tomorrow. Pray for Facebook. <laughs> that it'll come back. My wife, my wife... She is having a hard time forgiving me for that. <laughs> Uncertain riches. I've heard it said, dough is the wrong term for money. Dough sticks to your hands. Money don't. <laughs> Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I mean, money can be eaten by inflation, devalued by legislation, stolen by taxation. Don't build a life on money. It's uncertain riches. Rather, trust in God. Notice, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. God has created a whole world of pleasures. Things that we can enjoy. God wants you to enjoy your life. He wants you to go through life a happy life. He wants you to... Take in all the blessings that He has for you. I love how Ravi Zacharias defines a legitimate pleasure. He says it's something that refreshes along the journey without distracting from the ultimate goal. Anything that just refreshes us in, with our, in our walk with the Lord is a good thing. We should be thankful for, to God that life is full of such pleasures. God has given us richly all things to enjoy. 
Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Money is an evil in and of itself. Here Paul encourages those who have it to use it for the welfare of others and for the glory of God. If you've got some money, hey, be ready to give. Be willing to share. Verse 19, storing up for, yourself, for themselves a good foundation for the life to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Notice this, financial gifts to God in this life can lay up for you rewards in the life to come. Use your money wisely on this earth and God will bless you with eternal rewards. It's been said you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Verse 20, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Boy, the truth of God is under attack today, isn't it? We need to guard it, preserve it, teach it to new generations. And the best way to guard it is to live it out. Avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, by professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Paul signs off, Grace be with you, Amen.